You have reached Road Talk, Navigating Your Journey, a ministry and podcast of the Discover Young Adults Ministry at the Preston Crest Church of Christ in Dallas, Texas. We meet at 945 on Sunday mornings, and we have small groups all throughout the week. We are located at Preston Road and Highway 635 in North Dallas. My name is Jacob Hawk. I'm the Young Adults Minister and the host of this podcast. It doesn't matter if you are single, dating, if you want to be dating, if you're married, if you want to be married, or if you're divorced, or if you're trying to figure out at what stage of life you are passing through. At the Discover Young Adults Ministry, we want to help you discover life, discover love, and discover the Lord. If I can help you or serve you in any way, or if I can pray for you, please email me at jacob at pressandcrest.org. We are glad to welcome you back today to Road Talk and Navigating Your Journey. We are in a series right now over the pastoral epistles, which are the books of First and Second Timothy and Titus in the New Testament. Keith Harris, the preacher at Louisville Church of Christ, is joining me for these episodes and for this series, and we have made our way to the middle of First Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to spend a little bit of time today talking about deacons. Keith, glad to have you back with me today. Thank you, Jacob. I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Well, we are going to, uh, as I said, spend a little bit of time talking about the office of the deacon in the church, as it's mentioned in the pastoral epistles. And Keith, as you have probably witnessed in your ministry, I don't think we talk enough about deacons because these gentlemen, um, what they do for the church, they really are kind of the glue that holds things together. They are servants. They are actively working in the church day in and day out. A lot of what they do does not get seen publicly, uh, but every good church, I think, has a good set of deacons keeping the church moving as it should. What do you say about that, Keith? Yeah, there are so many, uh, I think, what we we might call unsung heroes that work behind the scenes, uh, taking care of so many different ministries within the church, and oftentimes they uh, go uncelebrated. And I think that maybe that's uh, uh, to our fault as a church uh, to not recognize the, the hard work. Now, I'm not saying we do that all the time. I'm just saying that there's there are some sometimes where you know, we fail to recognize them, and I think we ought to, and um, and understand that uh, even from a very early time within the church, the deacons served a very important role in the mission of the church, and so we ought to celebrate that and continue it, uh, to encourage the they serve within the kingdom. Absolutely, and I think it's a mistake. Sometimes people view the role of deacon or a deaconship as a, kind of a junior elder, that this is a elder in training, and though many deacons do eventually become elders, this is certainly not a stepping stone to become an elder. Um, even if a man serves as a deacon for 40 or 50 years, he does a tremendously important work for the church. And so I'll just read this passage, Keith, out of 1 Timothy 3, and then we'll kind of talk through it as we've been doing through the book of 1 Timothy. Yeah. 
1 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 8, Paul says that deacons likewise, that's likewise comparing to the elders that he mentions at the beginning of the chapter, deacons likewise are to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, their wives are to be women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be the husband of but one wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Hmm. Well, Keith, right out of the box, uh, Paul's pretty clear that just because there's an individual in your church who is a man and who is young, he's not necessarily immediately qualified to become a deacon. In fact, Paul says in verse 9 that deacons are to be men who are worthy of respect, but they must hold, keep hold of the deep truths of the faith. So, Keith, help us understand, what does that mean? How do deacons keep hold of the deep truths of the faith? Uh, it's a great question, and um, one that's somewhat challenging, but I think as we look at the, the text itself and the background behind what's being stated here, I think uh, it sheds a little light on this. And the deep truths that we read about is this same word that Paul used elsewhere for mystery. Uh, it's mysterion. It, it just simply is this idea that something that was once unknown or hidden is now revealed. And so these deep truths of the faith, uh, the mystery of the faith, and certainly in other writings of Paul, we see him talk about the mystery of the faith, uh, the mystery of Christ and the church, as he says in Ephesians chapter 5. Um, really what this lends itself to is an idea or uh, the concept of longing or desiring. Uh, and so if deacons are going to keep hold of the deep truths of the faith, the mystery of the faith, I think they have to long for or desire God's word uh, and have this inner uh, desire to be consumed by the word of God. And, and we see it uh, elsewhere in the New Testament to long for, uh, as Peter would say, long for the pure spiritual milk. Uh, which I'm convinced there in, in 1 Peter chapter 2 is Peter saying, long for the word of God, have that desire for God's word in your life. But we don't only see it in the New Testament, we also see it in the Old Testament. And one of the places that we see uh, this concept of longing for God's word or his commands uh, is from Psalm 119. Uh, it's verses 19 and 20. Uh, of Psalm 119, when psalmist says, I'm a sojourner on the earth, hide not your commandments from me. And then verse 20, my soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. Uh, and then later in that same psalm, uh, this is you know the longest of the psalms, but 
uh, verses 129 down through 131. Listen to what he says here. Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. And then verse 131 out of Psalm 119. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. And so this idea of keeping hold of the deep truths of the faith, I think has as foundation a desire for God's word and, and, and his calling for us as followers of Jesus. Uh, and so going all the way back again to, to Paul's use of this word mystery, um, things that were once hidden that have now been revealed, um, we, ought to, we, we ought to allow those truths just to simply consume who we are. Yeah, wonderful, uh, Keith. Very detailed answer. And specifically, as you're alluding to the fact that that word can mean mystery, one of the mysteries that's described under the umbrella of the mystery of the gospel in the New Testament is this idea of Jews and Gentiles coming together to become one family. That's part of the mystery in addition to the incarnation of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, but that you have people from two different backgrounds who become one big family is a mysterious concept particularly for the Jews. They they could not fathom that going back into their heritage where they are the, this chosen nation of God, the chosen people of Israel. Um, when you look at the context of Ephesus, well, that's exactly what you have. Half the church is Jewish, half the church is of the Gentile persuasion. They've become Christians, but they're coming from two completely different backgrounds. And so if this deacon is going to hold on to the deep truths of the faith or the mysterion, as you've you used there appropriately from the Greek, he's going to have a proper understanding of one of the mysteries of the gospel, and that's two becoming one. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's going to be very important for his context. And I think it's also good what you mentioned, that it's clear from just the meaning of the difference between the words of elder and deacon, that, that the deacon's certainly younger than the elder, um, but even though he's younger, he's still grounded in... Right in the scripture, which I think is an encouragement for the church that we can't ever start too early training the next generation of leadership. Um, You don't have to be the elder statesman to be um, a solid pillar of leadership in the church. And so in the same way that Paul does not want an elder to be a new convert, there's this idea here that the deacon also needs to be fairly along uh, down the road in his faith. Mm Mm-hmm. He says in verse 9, though, that as they're holding on to these deep truths, the second part of that verse is hold on to them with a clear conscience. I think that's interesting that he clarifies how they're supposed to hold on to the deep truths of the faith. What what does that mean to hold on to these truths with a clear conscience? Well, again, the, the, uh, the keeping hold of these deep truths or this mystery with a clear conscience, the mystery is essentially... Uh, the message of God's salvation, the calling um, that we've been given, the one by which we ought to live. And when he speaks of a clear conscience here, he he does so from the perspective of something that's pure or clean or clear. I think with regard to how we live um, ethically, it has to do with uh, being free from corrupt desire, uh, it has to do with being blameless, uh, being unstained from the guilt of anything. 
And that's, that's kind of tough, you know, mm-hmm. having this clear conscience, at least when you look at it from that perspective that Paul's coming at it, keeping hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. That means uh, being free, again, from corrupt desire, being blameless, being uh, unstained uh, from the guilt of any. Well, that seems kind of tough, doesn't it? But again, I think it lends itself to our understanding of the high calling of a deacon. Sometimes we elevate the the eldership or the role of an uh, or the office of an elder in a in a higher standing than the office of a deacon. And I think Paul, uh, while there's different roles, Paul understands this as these are qualities that are extremely similar. When, when you read through them, they're very similar uh, with a few different nuances. But, but one nonetheless that a, a deacon must possess, these qualities must be present. And that is, there can't be something in your life that uh, is causing you to struggle with your conscience as a follower of Jesus. If you are... Uh, desiring or looking to serve the church in this particular office. Yeah, Um, that makes sense. And uh, I think what you're saying, maybe just summarize a little bit, is what you believe and what you confess and what you hold on to should should be natural. You shouldn't be putting on a show or um, saying that you live this way so that you can serve (laughs) You're serving because you live this way. It's a natural, it's a natural progression. It's not making the cut. Um, like this is this is who you are through and through. And so when it comes time for the church to install deacons, it's a natural selection. Like there's already a, you know, there there's a direction of the people wanting to follow this individual, and that yeah. kind of gets us into this next question, verse ten. Um, Paul again says, okay, they need to be put through the ringer, quote unquote, Uh, maybe not that severe as that terminology is usually used, but they need to be tested to see if there's anything against them before they can serve. Uh, You know, Keith, every church kind of decides for themselves how to test these men. You know, the, the Bible says, to install elders and deacons, the Bible does not say what that process has to look like. Um, and I've I've worked at four different churches, and I, I've seen three different processes. So, how how should deacons be tested to see if there's anything against them before they serve? So I may have I may have a different take on this. I do believe that there ought to be. Um, a time of examination uh, from their life. But again, I come at this from the perspective of quality characteristics that are present in the life of an individual. And when you look at this word tested um, here uh, in this passage, verse 10, um, when you look at that word tested, it really means proven or tried. Um and it seems to me, and, and again, uh, I may have a different take on this, but it seems to me that this may be indicating that these are men who are already serving the church. They have already proven themselves 
as a dedicated uh, servant within the church. Um, now, again, the flip side of that is I do think that there needs to be some examination and discussion regarding whether or not they they feel that they are uh, you know qualified or meet these qualities or characteristics that are called for in Scripture. But the word may lend itself more to understanding of they have proven themselves as a servant within the church. Um, I think it ought to be that that those who are considered as a deacon are those who are already serving mm. in various ways. They've proven them in service. Uh, and so maybe maybe the process that, that we go through is as we consider men and as we call upon congregations to consider men, that we encourage them to look to those men that are already engaged in service. Yeah, I don't. I don't think that's off at all. I, I would agree with you, and particularly your your statement and your point, which I think is excellent. That you are installing men who are already doing the job. You're just kind of giving them a title, um, yeah. giving them a designation. But one of the reasons they've been tested is because they've made it obvious. Um, it is interesting. We'll get to this in the next episode, but in chapter four, Paul talks about that there are going to be deceiving spirits and teachers out there and that you need to test the spirits. So uh, I think there is some type of evaluation process, uh, official or unofficial. You don't just turn a blind eye and say anyone could be a deacon. I don't think it's as stringent as the elder <laughs> process of discerning who should be shepherds of the church. But um, as as we often say, the cream rises to the top, and these men are already engaged in the work of the church and blessing the lives of people. Now, if we go over to Acts chapter six, where um, you know you have these seven men who are chosen to serve the uh, Grecian widows, we don't call them deacons. The word's not there. It appears as if this is kind of the first deaconship. In installation, even though the word deacon does not appear in that chapter. But there is some requirements there in Acts chapter 6, and I won't go there and read those, but some of them are men who are full of the Spirit, um, who who have an understanding of the Word and the purpose of the church. So there, they choose men on purpose that they feel like are going to be good leaders. And so I think this same concept rolls over to First Timothy chapter 3. Now, the million-dollar question um, that we're going to talk about today is verse 11. He says, In the same way their wives are to be women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. Now, Keith, I put in here for the question, why are the qualifications of deacons' wives mentioned, but not qualifications for elders' wives? And as I'm sure you're going to discuss here in a minute, I've, I'm reading this out of the NIV, which translates it as wives, but not every translation uses the word wives, uh, but rather just a general term for women. So <laughs> what do we have here? Help us understand this. It seems to me, and the ESV that I'm reading from says wives as well, Um but as you pointed out, some uh, versions will render this word as just simply let the women be uh, worthy of respect and not malicious talkers, but temperate uh, and trustworthy in everything. Um, 
as as your question to I guess to try to get to the to the question at hand, why are deacons' wives mentioned and elders' wives not? Uh, some have suggested that uh, the the role or the the task of a deacon, uh, as he is out among the the uh, the congregation and working and serving in various roles within the congregation, and even uh, in especially and especially within the first century church. Uh, going from house to house, visiting, meeting the needs of the people that are there, that the um, the deacon would have had a um, a unique need for his wife to be very involved in his ministry, and that is, uh, you know, he wouldn't, you know, be going and, and serving. Uh, meeting the needs of a, of a woman who might be alone and uh, that sort of thing. And so some have suggested that maybe that's why the deacon's wives are mentioned and the elder's wives are not, though I would argue that the elder uh, has just as much responsibility to be among the people uh, as the deacon, while the deacon meets the, it seems, the physical needs the the elder role is more dealing with spiritual needs. So I don't, I don't think there's really a lot of difference between uh, their encountering from day to day the congregation. And so that being said, uh, others have suggested that this is a new class uh, that Paul is mentioning here, uh, and we would say deaconess, um, that there are uh, specific ministries within the church that um, that women uh, lead. I know many of our congregations, and I know here at Louisville, we have a very active uh, women's ministry. And uh, while the elders um, are uh, responsible for the congregation as a whole, uh, we have um, several women who lead that ministry. And, you know, and, and if we're just looking strictly at the definition of the terms, uh, we would say, Yes, there are servants within the church. Uh, and by extension, that word diakonos just means one who serves under the command of another. Uh, then by extension, they are deaconesses, uh, but maybe not having the official office or title that we would that we would uh, publish. Um, and that and that may or may not be right or wrong uh, of us to do. But but certainly, I think. Uh, Paul, when he uh, is addressing these characteristics, we would know that the wife of a deacon and and we would just by extension translate that to the wife of an elder as well, ought to be a, a woman who is worthy of respect, one that's uh, not malicious and uh, and temperate and and trustworthy and everything. I mean, we would desire that of uh, an elder's wife and of a deacon's wife. And so I think you can see it in both ways. Now, the interesting thing that, that I came across was something that Donald Guthrie had to say. And he said this, one argument in favor of deaconesses is that no special requirements are mentioned for the wives of elders. The truth probably lies between the two views that are seen, whether it's talking about their wives or whether it's talking about a new class um, of deaconesses. He says the reference is too general to postulate with certainty 
a distinct order of deaconesses, but some feminine ministration was necessary in visitation and in attending to women candidates for baptism. And he says, for such work, certain moral qualities would be essential, whether for deacons' wives or for deaconesses in their own right. And these qualities all contain a serious note befitting the character of their task. Uh, and so I think that's more, at least it gives us a little bit broader understanding of the possibility uh, of this being uh, a command or a statement directly to women who serve within the church. Um, I know later uh, Paul's going to talk about specifically, and we'll get to that, but talk about specifically the, the, the ministry uh, that women engage in within the church and their role and what they ought to be about. And so it's possible, I'll just say it's possible that he is indicating here um, that women who serve within the church ought to have these qualities in their life. Keith, that's an excellent explanation. Um, I really had nothing to add to that other than we see some manifestation of this in other writings of Paul in Romans. Obviously, in Romans 16, we have Phoebe. Mm -hmm. um, we read about Lydia, who's at Philippi in the book of Acts, and she's also mentioned as a place uh, that, that a church meets in her home. Um, so undoubtedly, whether we say this is because deacons' wives are going to be more involved in the ministry— <laughs> or because there are, or there is a third, I hate the term class, because then that sounds like importance, but a third category, I think is a better term, um, of a deaconess. Women are in leadership in the church, and we don't need to run away from that. Um, we need to embrace that, because women are in leadership to the extent that they're leaders from this verse alone uh, is somewhat ambiguous and i appreciated what guthrie had to say there that it's it's a little bit too ambiguous to postulate one way or the other it right. does not appear as if this verse endorses or supports an official office as that of the deacon but when, when we talked about this um a couple weeks ago in uh the first timothy 2 passage about women's roles in the public assembly uh, to say that women never teach is a gross misunderstanding of, I think, what Paul's trying to get at in First Timothy 2. And this is not a matter of men being better than women or, you know, um, chauvinistic or whatever it may be. True women in the church, I've never met a woman in the church who's a great leader who's offended because her name's not on the front of a bulletin mm -hmm. with a title. <laughs> you know, <laughs> when Paul writes this, he's not thinking about, well, how, how do you organize this on the front of your bulletin? Um He's just giving general advice, and if a woman's going to have a leadership role in the church, likewise, he says in the same way, she needs to be a woman of faith who, who holds on to the deep truths of the faith. Um, she lives a life where she's already been serving, and people are going to respect her. They're going to follow, follow her leadership. So I think you've yep. navigated that question very well, Keith. I have nothing else to add to that. I thank you for your insight, and thank you for that resource from Guthrie. I think he had some... Wonderful things to say as well. Okay, this may be a little bit repetitive um, uh, for the next couple of questions, but 
But Paul says that a man who has served well is going to gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ. Uh, Twofold question here. Why is that true? Why are they going to have an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith? But also, what does it mean to serve well? Isn't that a little bit subjective? Who, Who decides who's serving well and who's not serving well and based on what criteria? So go with that how how you see fit okay so uh the again i do i do agree with you i think it seems a little subjective you know who's who's going to define what serving well is um but let's just take for for example uh the the understanding that serving well is uh he's he has all of these qualities characteristics evident in his life he's committed uh, and and his ministry that he is given charge of is um, uh, we see f- uh, fruit uh, coming from that work uh, from that labor um, and the church is benefiting from that. I think that would be a, a, a relatively simplistic definition for serving well. Um, he's accomplishing the task that's put before him. Um, and so if he does that, then um, those who see him serving and those who see the ministry that he is given charge of uh, are going to have a, a greater appreciation for him and his heart, his passion for ministry uh, and his dedication to the church. Uh, and so because of that, he's going to have this excellent standing. People are going to say, wow, look at, uh, you know. Uh, look at, at John over there, how, how great he is doing. He is serving in a humble way. He's accomplishing great things. The church is benefiting from the ministry that he has charge of. And so there's an excellent standing. But then it, uh, this idea of having great assurance in their faith, um, I think there's a, a truth to the feeling that we have or um, our own self uh, perception when we know that we are serving the way God has called us to serve. Um, and that, that goes back again to that clear conscience. Um, if, you know, if I'm coming at this from a pure heart, clear conscience, something that's clean or clear or pure, um, and, and I, can, I can know for sure that I'm giving my all, and I'm doing what I've been called to do. I think there's great benefit in that just from a personal standpoint of, hey, I'm laying it all out there on the line. I'm giving myself for, for God, for the church. And I think that stands in contrast to one who phones it in, uh, one who uh, just you know barely gets by or does minimum uh, and, and is not really committed their life to the task and to the church the way that they ought to. I think there is within our human nature this feeling of um, self-contempt. You know, we, we understand and we know very clearly that we're doing what we ought to do or we're not doing what we ought to do. And, and when we're not, that feeling of guilt or you know, those thoughts of, uh, you know, those negative thoughts regarding ourselves seem to creep in. If he is serving well, then he's going to have that excellent standing. And not only that, but 
he's going to have that assurance within himself of his faith in Christ. And I'm, you know, I'm striving daily to do what God has called me to do. Yeah, and we see that in Paul's voice about his own life in Second Timothy, right before he's about to die. He says, I fought the good fight, I finished the, the race, and he says, there lays in store for me the crown of righteousness. He doesn't have any doubt at that moment. He's, right. he's very confident, and uh, even though he admits, particularly here in First Timothy, that at one time he was a blasphemer, and then he'll say, I was the chief of all sinners. In Second Timothy, he says, but I know where I'm going. Um, yeah. And so there is assurance for the future. And back to serving well, I think you've explained it perfectly, but uh, I keep in mind what Paul says in Colossians three twenty three about whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for God's glory. And, uh, you know, if we're giving him our everything, can we earn our way to heaven? Absolutely not. Um, but we have given our best effort. Uh, for mm-hmm. God's glory, and those who live by God's grace but also exemplify their best effort certainly can have great assurance and excellent standing uh, with with Jesus. You just reminded me of uh, the passage where uh, you know Paul talks about serving in such a way that you you understand I'm serving the Lord. I'm not really serving men, and and don't serve in such a way that you're just simply giving eye service. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, don't, you know, don't do something when people are looking and something else when they're not, you know, mm-hmm. you dedicate your life as though you understand fully everything that you do, you're serving the Lord. Mm-hmm. And again, that goes back to that commitment level. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Keith, thank you for your wonderful insights as always. We appreciate your time. Yeah, I appreciate the conversation today. He's wearing an Arkansas shirt because apparently... They've got some big baseball game today. Go Hawks. Go Hawks or Hogs? Uh, Yeah, yeah, go, go Hawks. Okay, thanks for the shout out on that. I appreciate that. (laughs) Well, all right. Well, as always, we thank you for spending some of your day with us today here at Road Talk. We ask that you keep your eyes on heaven. And if we can ever do anything to bless you or encourage you, please let us know. And we look forward to talking with you next time.